Amen. Please be seated. This morning I will preach from several passages in Scripture, but I would like to, at the onset, uh, read the account of the resurrection from Matthew. And if you have your pew Bible, that can be found on page 835. I'll start with Matthew's account, the 27th chapter, starting at verse 62. This morning I have no interest whatsoever in arguing for the historicity of the resurrection. That is well established. If you believe any other historical fact, you'd have no trouble believing the historicity of the resurrection. When you have 12 disciples who walked, talked, slept, lived with Jesus, witnessed his death, witnessed his resurrection, then a diverse group, not one conflicted with the story, and they all, most all of them died for the story. A hundred saw him for a 40-day period after he rose again. 500 at one time. Uh, there's not 500 people here. And if you all saw, so if I fell down the steps right now, I promise you that most of Kansas City would hear about it if it didn't find its way on YouTube somewhere. So 500 people witnessing Christ's resurrection and ascension, it's an historical fact. And only a pre-commitment to disbelief would deny the historicity of what happened when Jesus rose again. Rather, my goal this morning is to remind us once again, through God's Word, of the importance of the resurrection and why it has direct impact on your life right now. So, let's listen to this wonderful account of the resurrection, Matthew 27, starting at verse 62. I'll read to the 10th verse of chapter 28. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Let us pray. Father, thank you for raising your Son unto glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving me a reason to stand before the body of believers here gathered today. 
Lord, we acknowledge this is no myth, this is no allegory, this is no legend, this is no made-up tale. This is the truth exactly as it has happened. Allow me to preach Christ with power in this light. I pray for all preachers of Christ and his resurrection to do so with boldness and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit this day, even at this hour, in all your churches across the world. If there be any who would step up into the pulpit who do not believe in the resurrection of Christ, please shut their mouths and make the rocks cry out instead. Today we celebrate the most significant event the world has ever seen, our Father. We acknowledge and confess this, the raising of our Savior, the validation of all your word prophesied, said, and promised in the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilled. Lord, may you be glorified. May he be glorified this day and every day. Amen. I'm a huge fan of hymnody. In particular, I acknowledge a bias towards 16th and 17th century hymnody because of theology that is therein. Uh, All eras have produced music that is worthy of our Lord and should be sung by the church, but those particular eras in church history are my favorite. But recently, there has been some good hymnody, and there is a Northern Irish uh, couple who has been writing modern hymns with great theological depth. In fact, one song that is now being sung in many churches, just written in 2001, we sing it in our evening service, is called In Christ Alone. It has a wonderful progression celebrating the worth and significance of Jesus for us, his people. Very personal, but yet very glorifying of him. Listen to verse 3 as it then starts into verse 4 because it builds. Verse 3 says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Verse 4 then says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. It makes the right connection between the finished, victorious work of Christ on the cross and then rising again with power for our lives to address the two most significant issues every one of us face, guilt and fear. Not one of you ever has ever escaped some sense of guilt for what you've done and what it means or fear about what that guilt will mean in the afterlife ultimately, the unknown. Guilt and fear, the two greatest enemies of us all, the two most paralyzing things. They have factual basis, but they have powerful emotional basis also. Guilty for a reason, a sense of guilt. Fearful for a reason. These two things are addressed in the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ brings us real victory in attending relief concerning our two greatest earthly burdens, guilt and fear. And I would submit to you that no other person except a person who is in Christ, preaching Christ, could give anyone any real hope in these areas. It's just talk otherwise. Oh, don't be afraid. You shouldn't feel guilty. But I still do. I still am. Only those in Christ with a victorious risen Savior who's defeated death can come to you and say, there is real relief for guilt and fear and it's embodied in the person of Christ and his resurrection. Without his resurrection, we don't have these things. Now, let's walk through this logically. And I have an outline there for you. I don't want one person to leave here without clearly understanding what it is that Scripture teaches that gives us such confidence, such celebration on this Easter Sunday and every Sunday. First of all, why did Christ rise? There are actually several reasons why Jesus rose. It's not just for our justification. That's the most important reason for us. 
but I want you to think of some other reasons. He first rose to bring glory to himself and to his Father. That's the first reason why God acts, is to bring glory to himself. In John 17, verse 1, Jesus had spoken these words, this high priestly prayer. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He gives this purpose statement for going to the cross. In that going to the cross is rising again and is ascending is a complex of events that God orchestrates. And he says, glorify yourself and your son. So it's for his glory that he is raised from the dead. Creation is for his glory. Redemption of man is for his glory. And you see, redemption allows God to manifest a glorious attribute that would not be manifested any other way, his grace. Now, if God had never redeemed man, he'd still be glorious. But by revealing grace that is giving unmerited favor to people who deserve only wrath by giving of himself, that's glorious. And so his rising again confirms all of that, and we have the glory of God shown by the resurrection. That's the first reason why he rose again, for his own glory. In Romans it says, in chapter 1, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So his glory is the first reason. Secondly, Christ rises again to fulfill prophecy. You remember a thousand years before Jesus ever came to earth, David pens the words of Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's a picture of God not allowing his Holy One to see corruption in the grave. But Jesus himself, unlike any other religious leader or great thinker, predicted his own death and his resurrection. I want you to think about how profound that is. I mean, there are a lot of great speakers, a lot of people that preach sermons before Jesus and after Jesus, but none that I'm aware of predicted exactly the particulars of their death and then their resurrection. None of them did. Whereas Jesus says, and multiple times, uh, multiple occasions to those who are listening, but in particular in Matthew 12, he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. What does he mean by that? Remember Jonah in the belly of the well? Jesus goes on, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You think the Jonah story is amazing. He says, wait till you see what happens with the Son of Man. And it's one thing just to predict you're going to come back to life, which is amazing and unbelievable as it is. But to say in three days and give the exact particulars of it is a further emphasis on how he is Lord over prophecy. And the second reason Jesus rises again is to fulfill the prophecies that had long been given before. Voltaire did not predict his death and rise again. Moses didn't. David didn't. Solomon didn't. Plato didn't. Galileo didn't. The Caesars didn't. Any of the other religious leaders didn't. Jesus does. And his resurrection fulfills now and authenticates his word as given. He also raises from the dead in order to manifest his lordship over everything. You know, he didn't leave much to guess on earth. He showed his lordship over nature when he calmed the sea. He showed his lordship over sickness when he healed people. He showed his lordship over all manner of uh, the natural things we see, over hunger, for that matter, feeding the 5,000. That wasn't even a bother to him to be able to feed that many. He even showed his lordship over death when Lazarus died. He says at Lazarus' grave, 
I am the resurrection, the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He says this as the Lord who speaks as Lord over death. And he proves it when he raises this man Lazarus from the dead. So here he is, Lord over all these things. But the only thing he could do, the only thing be left to show his lordship more, would be for he himself to defeat death himself. And that's exactly what he does. And in Philippians it declares, Therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. So this wonderful event of the resurrection is far more than just my salvation and yours. It's a manifestation of his glory. It's a show of his lordship. It's a fulfillment of his prophecy. He also rises again to continue his role as the mediator. He is assigned to be the mediator in the Godhead. And he mediates for you and I between us and God. We cannot have a relationship with God without a mediator. And the mediator, the man, is Christ Jesus. It says in Romans 8, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? No matter what you feel like, right now Jesus is interceding for you, for me. And he rises again so that he can continue that mediatorial role. He never stops. He always lives in Hebrews 7, it says, to make intercession for us. Christ rose to carry on his office as the mediator. But of course... One of the reasons we're all here so excited and elated and there's this buzz about Easter is because he was raised for my salvation, for your salvation. Because he is raised again, I know I'm going to live forever. I know he's the prototype. He showed and proved that one can do it. And he's the first fruit, the firstborn. And because of him, I am truly saved from what I should get. That's what we mean. We talk about getting saved. You know, you hear that. It's saved from what we should get. Saved unto something glorious. Romans 4, verse 25, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We'll return to that in a moment. But in 1 Corinthians 15, we have the greatest picture of what it means by Jesus purchasing our salvation in the resurrection. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have been fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So we have the knowledge of our salvation, the confirmation of our salvation by his resurrection. Let's be honest. If Jesus stays dead, how do we trust the promises of Scripture? How can we say he has lordship over this if he stays dead? But because he has risen, it validates those promises and prophecies we read and rely upon for our salvation. Now, narrowing down, why did Christ's resurrection, or excuse me, what did Christ's resurrection accomplish for us? You noticed in our liturgy, we read for the, our affirmation of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism. And the question 45, as you see there, gives three benefits of our resurrection. I would suggest these have captured the biblical uh, revelation perfectly. Three reasons. First, by his resurrection, he's overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we are too already now resurrected to a new life. We now have new life in him. And third, his resurrection guarantees our glorious resurrection. Consider these just for a moment. Uh, First, we are declared righteous before God. I alluded to Romans 4 a moment ago. Listen closely to what it says. But 
the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but ours also. If it will be counted to us, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, our Lord Jesus. Romans 4, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses. That's him on the cross, the sacrifice, the offering for our sin, and raised for our justification. Now, it's absolutely true that his death and his resurrection together have to be seen together as the act that saves us. But as I just alluded to, if he doesn't rise, then the act on the cross is just another death. It's just another well-meaning sacrifice for someone. But his rising, that's what brings ultimate justification. What is justification? It's being pardoned from your sins. All of them. Not just some of them, all of them. But it's also being declared now righteous as Jesus is righteous. It's not like he just says, okay, I pardon your sins and walks away from you. He pardons your sins in justification and gives you the righteousness earned by Christ and gives you his righteousness. So when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. Now, how secure are you? Only as secure as God loves Jesus. How secure is that? So the righteousness of Christ is exchange with our righteousness. He takes on our sin, goes to the cross and pays for it. We get his righteousness and we stand as pardoned and declared righteous, accepted as sons and daughters now. That is a powerful accomplishment and benefit for every person who trusts Christ. Not only is this true, but we are given power then to live our lives. He doesn't just declare us righteous and say, okay, be on your way, pat us in the back, go live for me now. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a deposit to help us walk with him. How powerful is that? Only as powerful as it was to raise Jesus, that's the same spirit that dwells in you, in all of us. We are given power for living now. Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The Spirit who raised Jesus also dwells in you, believer, you who trust in Christ. He gives you the Spirit of God. So not only does he declare you righteous, pardon you from your sin, but he gives you power for living a new life. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. It means a life contempt completely yielded unto God because of what he has done. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Make no mistake, believer, no matter what you feel like, no matter what you're going through, the Holy Spirit of God is deposited in you. And you have power for victory. I know it doesn't always feel that way, and we fall down a lot, don't we? But the Spirit never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And because of what the Son has done in His death and His resurrection, He'll always be with you and will always help you. And the sense you get, maybe of guilt, is often conviction to help you out of whatever that behavior, whatever that thing is that you're part of or doing, to help you walk in newness of life. Well... The accomplishment is our declaration of righteousness, power for living, but also it's ultimately a guarantee of our own resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 in its entirety gives us the importance of the resurrection. Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead in Colossians, meaning he's the first one that will die in a prototypical sense, showing what our resurrection will be like and then rise again so we can see and we know what we're living for, what we're moving towards. But listen to what 1 Corinthians 15 says. 
very specifically about your resurrection. I know everyone wonders what will happen next. Well, for you who trust in Christ and his work, this is what happens. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's using terminology like a seed planted in the ground. He's the first fruit planted in the ground, and then he sprouts up resurrection. That's the picture. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. You know, I get the question often enough from visitors, what do you believe about the end times? They want to know specifics on everything, what the left toe of the beast looks like, or who the Antichrist is, or what exactly does Israel mean for all this? I'm not saying I don't care, but I'm saying what I care about is what's really clear here. That when Jesus comes again bodily, he'll come bodily, and he will raise first the dead in Christ. That's the resurrection. That's the end. He will raise those who are already in the graves. And people who are alive will get to see that in some fashion. And he'll transform them, give them their new resurrection bodies. Then, after that has happened, those who are still alive in Christ, they'll be transformed and they'll be given a new life. That's what happens in a twinkling of an eye, is the resurrection unto the new heavens and the new earth. That's the final resurrection. I can't give you all the details. I don't think our minds can wrap around everything that's involved in eternity. But I think we can get this as it's shown forth by Christ, who's sown and then raised up again, and that's going to be true for all those who are united to him. Now, having said all this, laying some groundwork that needs to be laid, I have to ask the question of the hymn that I started with. Are the words of that modern hymn biblically justified? No guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me? Really? I think it's precisely accurate says it better than I could ever dream of saying it. That's the practical outflow of what we've just established doctrinally, what it says in the Word. The two chief burdens of every person are guilt and fear. Guilt about what we've done or not done. Fear, and specifically fear about the unknown and the ultimate unknown, which is death. The resurrection of Christ gives us relief, real relief and encouragement today. How so? Well, first of all, let's consider guilt. No more guilt in this life based on the resurrection. Guilt, it is written, is the fact, state, or verdict of an offense, crime, violation, or wrong committed. Guilt is also a cognitive or an emotional experience that occurs when a person realizes or believes that he or she has violated a moral standard. Now, there's false guilt and there's real guilt, guilt that we should have because we have violated. Then there's conjured guilt that a culture can kind of put on people. What we ought to be concerned with is what the Scripture says we should feel guilty over or what we are guilty of, and then address how this guilt is answered in Christ. We experience guilt over our sin very simply. The resurrection can take this debilitating guilt and the accompanying feeling right away. In fact, it says in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now, I want to be clear because I'm going to talk about the fact that guilt is no longer something a believer needs to have. But I want to say to you, don't misread me. I don't mean to say you could do whatever you're doing right now and just feel like it's okay. Because if you're a child of God, you already know without me saying that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. I'm talking about when we confess it, when we repent. We may be struggling with it, but we're confessing to God, 
I am struggling with this sin. Like in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. That struggle before God is, is a fruit of repentance. It's confession. And so for you and for those who are still haunted by something that happened way, way long ago, this message is for you. But for the one who obstinately stands in the way and says, I'm a Christian and God's just going to have to accept me, no, he doesn't. Because that's an evidence that you probably don't grasp what the width and the depth and the height of the love of God for Christ Jesus is for us. Because it hasn't affected you enough to say no to something or even try to say no. So please hear me when I say that we have no more guilt in this life as believers. What guilt is weighing you down this day? What sin have you confessed and repented but still cannot seem to shake free of the attending guilt that comes, the shame that comes? Do you hear the message of the resurrection? Do you see what victory it's purchased you? The sense of guilt can now go, can leave. I'm not saying there won't be issues to deal with regarding something that was done, but real guilt that comes from God's displeasure in you should leave as you recognize his utter pleasure in you because of Christ. The resurrection of Christ validates his substitution for you. You're united to Christ by faith now. He loves you as he loves his son. He knows what you did, okay? You're not hiding anything from him. And he still loves you because he loves you in Christ. The raising of Christ confirms the Father's acceptance of Jesus and all those who are united to his son. Are you united to Christ by faith? If you are, he died and was raised again for your sins. Your actual guilt before God, your actual guilt before God is gone. You're not actually guilty anymore. I know you may feel like it still, but you're not anymore. Well, how do I combat this, Pastor? How do I deal with guilt? I'll tell you how I deal with guilt because I've got it my own. I mean, I, I, there's many things I regret from the past. And, you know, the devil whispers in your ear to make you feel insecure. Your own flesh will lie against you to make you feel insecure. Other people, sometimes well-meaning, will whisper in your ear and they'll condemn or they'll bring condemnation for guilt that's been taken away. All I know how to react, the only way I know how to react that works is to go to God's sure promises every time the devil whispers in your ear. The next time the devil whispers in your ear about your guilt, about uh, that thing you did in the past, that, that immorality you committed, that divorce that occurred, or that broken relationship because of something you did, that anger that you leashed out on someone, that thing you did against someone, or that thing you did against God in the privacy of your own mind and heart and life, whatever it is, when the whisper comes to you about this guilt, Repeat back to the devil what it says in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. That's what you say to the devil when he comes to you. When the devil comes to you, say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, I'm a new creation, devil. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what God says, no matter what you say about what I did. This is what God says about me now. Say to him what it says in Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and content with what you have. For as he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. When your own conscience speaks to you and rails against you, remember that the resurrection has purchased for you a relief from guilt. And say in your mind and heart what it says in Ephesians 1, even as he chose me in him before the foundation of the world, that I would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined me to be an adopted son through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, no matter what I feel like right now. 
And when that well-meaning person comes to you and whispers in your ear about something that you have done that you should never forget, that God will never forgive you from, for remember what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Not some, not an unforgivable point that he has to still condemn you for. It's all wrapped up in the work of Christ and his resurrection that validates it all. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Colossians 2, verse 13. You can recall when that person says to you that you should not ever think that anyone will ever accept you because of the sin you've committed. Well, Christ does because in the 13th verse of the second chapter, and you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he set aside nailing it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, a resurrection means that you can have actual relief from your guilt, not just feign guilt or just talk like this, this, this nonsense talk that people will say in popular culture and even in Christian culture, just talk positive all the time without mention of the fact that we need the forgiveness of sins. That's just, that's just all a facade that makes us feel happy for the hour we hear it. But when we walk out, we still got the same problem. I got guilt. I've got fear. It's all done away with in Christ, in our union with him, and his resurrection to validate it. And ultimately, the, the thing that plagues everyone the most, even the most devout believer in a moment of weakness, struggles with fear, fear of death in particular. It's universal. There's no one who doesn't have some sense of the fear of death. It's really about the unknown, fear of standing before God, the fear of the afterlife. What happens? Well, I hope that if you see your position in Christ and its reality, that it gives you a sense of confidence to stand before God in the afterlife because you're not standing before God based on what you've done. You're standing before God with Christ as your advocate and you already know what God thinks of Christ. This starts to relieve our fears. In Christ, because of his resurrection, we need not fear death and all its attending details, its timing, when it's going to happen, the process itself, how will it happen, the fact that everyone will stand before God. Jesus said before he ascended, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Paul said, facing death consistently in his life, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I, shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. See, he's gotten to the point where he's hard-pressed. It'd be better if I was with him right now for eternity than here. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. In other words, he's called. In fact, you know that every one of you is immortal until God says you're not anymore. You will never die a second before God ordains. There's no, there's no accident in death. As tragic as it seems to us, you're immortal, so go live for him. You'll die when he wants you to. And there's no escaping that. No one, gets, no one escapes this. So the one who's in Christ, this, this only liberates them to go do great things for God in their lives. It does not paralyze us. 2 Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home 
with the Lord. We have this confidence because of the resurrection. Have you ever wondered what Lazarus' life was like after he came back from the dead? Now, in one sense, that's a poor guy. He died twice. Okay, that's just awful. I mean, two processes of death. But I wonder what his life was like between his resurrection the first time and when he died again. I would be willing to submit that he had a whole new look at everything. I mean, he'd been there. He died. I know what it's like. And you know what? It's not so bad in Christ. And so he must have lived his life just on fire, I would think, for Christ in those periods between his first death and his second death. Listen, none of us are going to die twice. We got one life, one time to go before Christ. Make this life one that looks with great joy to the next life, and its priorities are based on what will happen for eternity. Such a small blip we live, brothers and sisters, 70, 80 years if we're fortunate, is so small compared to eternity. But in Christ, you can face whatever comes next, and you can do so with anticipation rather than with fear and with trembling. The hymn is absolutely true. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me, the resurrected Christ. I want to conclude by reminding you of a wonderful scene from one of the great books of all history, The Pilgrim's Progress. There's awesome descriptions throughout this whole book of the Christian life. If you haven't read it, I really encourage you to do so. It basically is the story of a, a person's journey from before they were a believer to the time they were a believer, the reality of life and all the things you face. I mean, the characters that they face, there's, there's that faithful, hopeful, everyone needs a hopeful, but there's also Mr. Obstinate that he meets along the way, Mr. Worldly, Mr. Pliable, wise man, an evangelist. And on this journey, who, the man starts as pilgrim, becomes Christian. And by the time he gets to the end of the story, the ups and the downs, uh, there's this constant theme of needing to rely upon the king, relying upon essentially his savior. But he struggles with that, just like everyone does. He struggles and gets to the end of life, and there's this picture. And at the end of uh, Christian and Hopeful's journey, they come to a wide river, separating them from their final destination, the celestial city. You can see what the, where the allegory goes. Since the river looks deep and dangerous, Christian is reluctant to cross. He doesn't know what to expect when he crosses it. When he asks if there's some way to get across, he's told, yes, but only Enoch and Elijah were permitted to cross that way. You know, they, they died by being translated, right? Everyone else is going to have to cross this river. The river, of course, is symbolic of death. Christian is apprehensive about the prospects of crossing the river. When he asks, is it the same depth all the way across? He is told, it is deeper or shallower as you believe in the king. As Christian and Hopeful began to cross the river, the water starts flowing over Christian's head. Out of fear, Christian cries out, I'm able to, uh, I can't touch the bottom. I'm able to touch it. The water is going over my head. I'm going to drown. Hopeful yells back, I'm able to touch the bottom. I am able to touch it, Christian. The river isn't that deep. Hold on and I'll come over to help you terrified Christian yells back, no, save yourself. The sorrows of death are all around me. I wasn't a good pilgrim. I've sinned much before I started my journey, and I've sinned much afterwards. Hopeful reminds him to think on the king. He doesn't tell him to get better or do more. Think on the king. Think on reality, Christian. Then Christian remembers what the king said. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. All of a sudden, Christian is able to touch the bottom. The process of crossing over to the other side is no longer terrifying. And it's not terrifying because Christ 
is risen again. Let's pray. Father, we agree with the great words that were penned in recent times that there in the ground our Lord's body did lay, and the light of the world was by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he arose. And as he stands in victory, even now, sin's curse has lost its grip on us. For we are his, and he is ours. We are bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. From life's, life's first cry to its final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Till he returns or calls us home, here, in the power of Christ, we'll stand. Amen. Let's turn together in our hymnals to a great Easter hymn, 286. Let's stand together and sing the first and the second verse as the elders come to prepare the table. <laughs> 